we've been talking about, or we began talking last week about core values. Core values, what are core values? Well, core values are sometimes referred to as the DNA of an organization, uh, the identity of an organization, what makes an organization tick, uh, what are the tenets of baseline importance for that organization. Uh, Jim Collins and Jerry Porras, uh, kind of gurus in this subject, they write that core values are the essential and enduring tenets of an organization, a small set of timeless guiding principles. Core values require no external justification They have intrinsic value and importance to those inside the organization. You see, values are those ideals that within an organization, that all within an organization rally around and we take together to identify with. And they inform what the organization does in very profound ways. Because the reality is, and we recognize this, that the sum is greater than any one individual part. That's why we've called this series Family Traits. Uh, These are values, these are realities around which we unite as a family. We want to be stronger as a whole than we are individually. And just as family uh, family members often have similar qualities and values while still maintaining distinction in their personalities and role, we as a church want to rally around these four core values. They are what make us Ninth and O Baptist Church. Well, what are our values? Well, Dr. Cook shared with us about truth last week. Tonight, I have the privilege of sharing with you about worship. In two weeks, we're going to talk about community, and then we'll talk about missions after that. Uh, if you look at the logo, I pointed this out uh, in one of the services. I don't know if I did both, but anyway, the logo, uh, the values are embedded in our logo. So you have the cross representing truth. You've got the upward arrow representing worship. You've got the left arrow representing community and the right arrow representing missions. These things are important to us. They identify who we are and, and, and we, as we worked through the logo, we said, you know, we want to define who we are even in our, in our imaging and our branding, if, our, if you will. Now, why have we identified worship as a core value? I mean, we've, we've named this series Family Traits and the subtitle Defining the Values That Unite Us. And if you've had any exposure to the American church in recent years, you know that worship is one of those values around which the church often doesn't unite. It can actually be a point of contention. It can be a point of division. The worship wars in years gone by have divided churches and have divided Christians in ways that are displeasing, I believe, to the Lord. And in many instances have given the church a bad name. And it's unfortunate at best and and perhaps even sinful at worst that this has happened in the church. As we think about that, we need to be honest with ourselves and recognize the fact that we are only one decision ourselves away from being divisive in our own context over matters that are not first-tier issues. So how then do we go about protecting ourselves from going down that road? And how do we work toward maintaining the unity of the church that Jesus himself prayed for in John 17? We do that by knowing and yielding ourselves to Scripture. That's our first core value. It's truth. In order to maintain unity here at Ninth and O, we must all work toward possessing these values ourselves. And as we all personally become people of truth, people of worship, people who value community, people who value missions, as we all identify with those things ourselves, we will be strengthened and united as a church. And that's why we're talking about them. We want us to rally around these things. But we still have to define our terms, right? What do we mean when we say worship? Well, in order to maintain unity in our worship, we have to turn to Scripture and let Scripture define it for us. And so tonight we're in Colossians chapter 3, Colossians 3, verses 16 and 17. They give us a framework in how we're to understand and practice corporate worship 
in the church. Now, these truths play out corporately as we gather as the body together to sing and worship the Lord, but they play out individually in our lives as we respond to the truth of God as revealed in his scripture on a day-by-day basis. And as we apply these realities in our own lives personally, they begin to play out corporately in the body together as a unified people. So let's read together Colossians 3, verses 16 and 17. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We're going to work through these verses phrase by phrase tonight to understand more fully what it is that Paul wants us to understand and to more fully understand why we sing as a church. Now, I recognize this idea of worship, uh, especially in worship circles. You know, we, we, we kind of hammer on, you know, worship is all of life. It's, it's not just the singing. But tonight we're going to talk about singing. We could spend a whole series talking about all the different facets of worship, and I would be up for that, Dr. Cook. Um, but uh, we want to look at a biblical theology of worship and, and our singing as we gather together corporately. As we think about worship as a core value for our church, we're thinking in terms of our gathered worship as we come together to worship corporately. We value Father-glorifying, Jesus-exalting, Spirit-empowering, and infused worship gatherings. And we want to experience the manifest presence of God as we magnify his glory together. So how does that happen? Well, it's right here in the text. Paul exhorts us to be a people saturated with scripture. He says to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Every time I read that phrase, I instantly think of a sponge. We have a sponge sitting on our sink at home. And that sponge oftentimes is very hard because it's been sitting there since the last time the dishes were done. Now, as soon as you take that sponge and you put it in the water, what happens? It absorbs that water. And my experience with sponges are that I I can begin to wring that sponge out. And no matter how much I wring it, if I've just put it in the water, I can't get that water out. It stays soft. It's been saturated with that water. Well, in the same way, we should be a people full of scripture so that it overflows from who we are. It should pepper our speech. It should characterize our lives in a very conspicuous way. Without exposure to the water, though, our hearts become hardened. That sponge, though it it feels soft in the moment, if you set it on the counter and you come back tomorrow, it's hard as a rock. If we're not constantly exposing ourselves and availing ourselves of Scripture, we become hardened. How do we get to that point? How do we saturate ourselves in Scripture? Well, it's very basic. We know these things. We need to read Scripture. And even as we think about the values of our church, we talked about truth last week. There have been studies that have done recently to define, okay, what are the markers of healthy churches? Churches that are healthy, that are growing, that are, that are going places. And the number one identifier that these studies have found are simply that the majority of people within that church read their Bibles on a daily basis. So if we're going to be a word-saturated people, we need to be, at the very least, reading our Bibles. But we want to go deeper than that. We want to meditate on the Scriptures, Now, meditating, I heard an illustration once that I thought was very helpful. What does it mean to meditate? Um, You know, oftentimes we have like a, a, you know, uh, an Eastern idea, you know, sitting around, trying to empty our minds, but that's not at all what Christian meditation is, right? Christian meditation is is filling our minds with scripture. It's kind of like a cow that chews the cud, right? So what does a cow do when it chews the cud? Well, it, it might take a bite of grass and then it chews on it, right? And then it swallows it. Well, what does the cow do then next? Well, it regurgitates it and it chews on it some more. 
And then it swallows it again and regurgitates it and chews it more. And that's chewing the cud, right? Now, that's really gross, isn't it? Uh, but that's what we want to do with the scriptures, right? As we read the scriptures daily, we ingest that. And then we constantly throughout the day recall it to mind, chewing on it, allowing the spirit to do his work as he informs us with what he intends for those scriptures. We want to chew the cud. We want to meditate on scripture. We want to memorize scripture. Psalm 119.11, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. People often say, well, it's hard to memorize scripture. I'm not very good at memorizing things. Well, for those of us in the room who are a little bit older, before we all carried cell phones in our pocket, we all had phones in our houses, right? Right now, if I need to call Danielle, I don't even know what her phone number is. I just hit a button on my phone and it calls her. I have all this space in my brain that I used to memorize phone numbers that I don't have to memorize anymore. They're all on my phone. So all that bank in my memory is, is freed up now and it is in yours too. You have space in your memory to memorize scripture. We can all do it. It just takes effort. Now, as we define who we are at Ninth and Oak, we are a word-centered church. Our first core value is truth. This is why we do what we do. We want Ninth and Oak to be a church that is foundationally biblical. We want to be submitted to the word of Christ. We want the word to dwell richly among us as a church. And so we seek to be word-centered in our worship. In John 6, Jesus proclaims that he is the bread of life. And he says there that those who would follow him would eat his flesh and drink his blood. Now, that's a kind of an off-putting statement, isn't it? That if we're going to follow Jesus, we need to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And a dispute arose even as he said that among the leaders. And a lot of people actually who had been following up to this point said, you know, I'm, I'm not going to have anything to do with that. That's just a little too far. So when all these people kind of walk away, what does Jesus say? Well, in John 6, 63, he said, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe. And who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. When we gather as a church, we have nothing to say if it does not point us back to Jesus. In reality, where else can we go? We want the words of eternal life to saturate all that we are and all that we do as a church and as individuals. And so when we gather to worship, that foundational quality of our worship gatherings is truth. We want to read the Bible. We want to pray the Bible. We want to sing the Bible. Everything we do revolves around the scriptures. Our worship is to be truth-saturated, word-saturated truth. Well, how does that come about? Well, Paul continues in, in uh, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Now, Paul recognizes that we have difficulty oftentimes living word-centered lives on our own. And so he reminds us that we need one another to hold ourselves to this reality. We are responsible as we deal richly in the word of Christ to be teaching and to be admonishing one another according to that abiding word, according to that truth. Well, what does it mean to teach and what does it mean to admonish? Well, let's talk about teaching first. Now, certainly there are some in the body who have been given the specific gift of teaching. And God has raised them up to lead the church and to teach in various contexts. But the reality is that while not everybody has the specific gift of teaching, we are all to be teaching one another. 
Paul doesn't qualify the statement here. He says that we are to be teaching and admonishing one another. Proverbs 27, 17 says, iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. As God gives each of his children insight into the scripture through his Holy Spirit, we are then able to share those truths with others for their encouragement, for their upbuilding, for their teaching. By working through scripture together, we grow in our understanding of what God has revealed to us. And teaching and admonishing are two sides of the same coin, really. Teaching is the instructive side and admonishment is the corrective side. As we teach one another, we're proactively sharing truths from Scripture. And that plays out in a a myriad of contexts here at our church, through our BFGs, through the preaching, uh, even through one-on-one conversations that we have, whether we're here in the building or whether we're out wherever we are during the week. As we participate in those various means that God has provided for us, we are given an opportunity to teach and to be taught by those who are learning with us. But Paul doesn't stop at teaching. He says we're also to admonish one another. This is the corrective side of instruction. It involves warning a brother or sister of their error and the potential consequences of that error. Now, as a church who is abiding richly in the word of Christ, there's a sense in which we ought to be self-correcting. Church discipline plays out every day in the small conversations of correction between brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the way Jesus has intended it. And he outlines in Matthew 18 how to do that. But he says there, if your brother listens then you've won your brother. That process is complete. The situation only escalates as there is resistance to that admonishment. And in some cases, the discipline will need to escalate to a higher degree. But the ideal is that in our conversations with one another, these issues are corrected as we work them out together at that interpersonal level. As we teach and as we admonish one another, we are all made holy. Now, Paul says that teaching and admonishing is to be done in all wisdom. As we allow the word of Christ to dwell richly in our hearts, we are equipped with the wisdom from God to be able to appropriately and accurately teach and admonish. We want to help people in that truth. But the instruction and correction really goes both ways. We're not simply the ones offering it out, but we receive it as well. As we fulfill our calling to one another to teach and admonish, we must also keep our ears open to that teaching and that admonishment of others that's coming our way. And this is true wisdom. That's what James says in James 1. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So our worship is marked by teaching and admonishing together. Practically speaking, what does our growth in the word of Christ playing out through teaching and admonishment look like in the church? Well, Paul answers that in the next phrase. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, you're familiar with that verse, but if you kind of look at it through the lens, maybe you haven't heard the verse before, you hear that for the first time. We teach and we admonish one another through, and then you might expect... Uh, you know, through lectures or through conversations or through books or letters or blog posts or tweets. But instead, he says, we, we do these things through singing. Why are we expected to sing? Well, first of all, it's commanded in Scripture. We're commanded in the ESV. If you simply search the phrase, sing to the Lord, and not to mention other phrases that you could search, but if you search sing to the Lord, you get 40 different results just in the ESV. Psalm 149.1, praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the godly. Psalm 95.1, oh come, let us sing to the Lord, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. First Chronicles 16.23 says, sing to the Lord all the earth, 
tell of his salvation from day to day. We sing because we're commanded to. But not only that, we sing because we want to, right? It's a natural response to God's revelation of himself and his work to us. Just as it's natural to shout in excitement when your team scored a touchdown yesterday or today, it is natural to shout, to sing in excitement over what God has done for us. Psalm 95.1, oh come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. And we often joke about that verse, right? Well, I, you know, I make the joyful noise. You know, well, he's still saying, you are without excuse. We should sing. Even if all we've got is a joyful noise, we can't really classify it as singing. We still need to make that joyful noise. As we come to understand more of who God is, that understanding leads to a greater response, which very often involves singing. We, rejo- we sing because it's commanded. We sing because we want to. And we sing because God is singing over us. We see that in the scripture. You think about, uh, you watch a football game sometimes, right? And, and the, the team is, has gained momentum. Maybe the, the, the game has shifted. And they're making a drive down the field. And just before the ball is snapped, you see the linemen stand up. And they're, they're trying to get the crowd amped up. They're cheering. They feed off of those cheers. Well, just as an athlete finds energy in that excitement, that roar of the crowd, we find energy and excitement as we realize that we have our God and our Father who is singing over us. Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. We have a Father who's not only receiving our singing, but he is singing over us as well. But the reality of this passage is that our singing is not ultimately for ourselves. Though there is great personal benefit as we sing, as we involve ourselves in corporate singing. The worship gathering is not intended to be a private worship experience. There's this misconception in the church a lot of times that when it comes to the singing time in a corporate worship gathering, we need to tune everything else around us. You know, we need to shut that out. This is, right now, this is just me and Jesus, though I might be standing in a room with a thousand people. This time's about me and Jesus, right? A lot of people have that idea. They think that if if we can do that, then we can really enter in and worship. And some would say that when we worship, we have an audience of only one, namely God himself. But I think if you think carefully about what Paul is saying here, I think he's arguing just the opposite. If we truly want to engage in worship through our singing, then in a sense we will do so with one hand stretched toward God and the other hand stretched toward one another. God has called us to teach and admonish one another through our singing. If we're to do that, we need to sing with vigor, with passion. Not just for that audience of one, but for the benefit of those around us. As we understand this truth, we're better positioned to understand that God uses the gift of music and singing not simply to glorify himself, though that certainly is the foremost priority, but also to encourage his people. But Paul makes it clear as well that there's no inspired style of music that is essential for the church. Instead, he calls for variety, I believe, in our songs. He calls for psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Uh, now, there, maybe there's some debate about what these mean. The psalms, of course, you know, that refers to the book of psalms. We're called to sing psalms together. Uh, what are the hymns? Well, I think this term appri- applies broadly to songs being written which aren't included in the canon of Scripture. Uh, so in our context, that would include worship songs that we sing that you might find in a traditional hymnal. And it might include songs that we sing from church history or maybe that are even being written today that you might not think of as coming from a hymnal. Uh, Praise choruses and other modern worship songs. 
Spiritual songs, maybe it refers to spontaneous songs or songs, uh, just kind of the ongoing nature of new songs being written for the church. However we understand these three terms, the reality is I think that Paul is pointing to uh, the variety that God intends for us to use in our worship as we sing to him. Not just scripture, not just the songs we write, not just the songs historically that we've sung, but all of it. He wants us to praise him with all of these things. And as you think about it, the songs that others have written that have been handed down to us, we see the teaching and admonishing at work, right? You know, when we stand up here and sing Rock of Ages by Augustus Toplady, I mean, that was written long before any of us were born, right? And yet, Augustus Toplady is teaching and admonishing us as we sing that song. Even through the songs that he wrote down, he was impressed by scripture, he recorded it in song, and it has been passed down to us, and we benefit from that. So we work that the word of Christ would go richly in our hearts so that we may have wisdom to teach and admonish one another through singing. What then should be our attitude in this corporate task? Back to the verse. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now some translations like the New King James have the word grace in place of that word thankfulness. John MacArthur says that believers sing out of thankfulness of God's grace. When we sing together, we must be deeply aware of and affected by the realities of the gospel. The reality that God is holy, that we are sinners, that we need a savior, and that Jesus offers us reconciliation with God through his death and resurrection. And then we respond in faith to those realities. And as you think through those things, I mean, the, the, the natural response is, how can I keep from singing? As these things well up within us, it overflows in our sung worship. In other words, our word of Christ indwelt singing, which serves the purpose of teaching and admonishing brothers and sisters in Christ, should flow from an overwhelming sense of gratitude for the grace of God in our lives. In verse 17, Paul quickly takes the realities that we've been talking about and he applies them not only to our corporate gatherings but to every moment of our individual lives. He says, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. All of our lives are to be truth-fueled acts of worship to our Savior King. As we gather in corporate worship, as we sing, and as we are sung to, as we are taught, as we are admonished, it empowers us and it strengthens us by his spirit to worship him as we go from this place. So how do we tie these truths together? How do we allow them to influence our corporate worship? How do they become a reality as a value in our church? Well, first off, we simply need to read and study and meditate and memorize the scriptures so that the word dwells in us individually, richly, that it fills us with wisdom, such that we can be effective in teaching and admonishing one another. If we're going to value worship corporately, then we have to value it and pursue it individually, which means, first of all, that we pursue truth and allow it to have its work in our lives. One application for this, uh, it's kind of obvious, but sing. When we gather together, Sing. John Wesley, it's a fun exercise. John Wesley wrote some uh, rules for singing. If you go home and Google John Wesley's rules for singing, you'll, you'll find them quickly. And 
Uh, they're helpful and, and even humorous in some ways. Uh, I want to read a few of them to you. Uh, John Wesley's rule for singing, rule number three. He says, sing all. See that you join with a congregation as frequently as you can. Let not a single degree of weakness or weariness hinder you. If singing is a cross to you, take it up and you will find it a blessing. Sing. When we come together, sing. Uh, Rule number four. I like this one. Sing passionately and with good courage. Beware of singing as if you were half dead or half asleep. But lift up your voice with strength. Be no more afraid of your voice now, nor more ashamed of its being heard than when you sang the songs of Satan. So when you're, uh, Blake, when you're driving down the road belting out uh, Rolling Stones, <laughs> don't be any less ashamed when you're here singing the songs of our Savior. Rule number seven, above all, sing spiritually. Have an eye to God in every word you sing. Aim at pleasing him more than yourself or any other creature. In order to do this, attend strictly to the sense of what you sing and see that your heart is not carried away with the sound but offered to God continually. In other words, what he's saying is pay attention to and seek to understand what you're singing and don't be moved simply by the music. So shall your singing be such as the Lord will approve here and reward you when he comes in the clouds of heaven. We sing, we gather, we sing, and we sing for the encouragement and for the benefit of the others in the room. Even if you don't like the song, even if you don't like the song, we're still called to sing. The reality is nobody likes 100% of the songs that we sing together as a church. But I've heard it said that the mature believer is easily edified. So even if I might not like the setting, oh man, there's another hymn that they messed up. Whatever our complaint might be, we can still look at the truth in that song and be encouraged by it. We can be taught by it. We can be admonished by it. So as we sing, receive the word, even if it's a song you don't like, and sing along. Find the truth in the song and rejoice in it, even if it's not your cup of tea. Keith Getty in his book Sing writes this. He said, your ability to sing is fearfully and wonderfully made. Around the 12-week mark, the vocal cords of a baby growing in the womb are in place and have been shown to work long before the baby is born. We may sound different, but each of us has the same vocal apparatus. You, Bono, Pavarotti, Sinatra, breath flowing up from our lungs, vibrating through our vocal cords in our throat and pushing sound out through the articulators of our mouths, tongues, and lips. Singing is not merely a happy byproduct of God's real intent of making us creatures who speak. It is something we're designed to be able to do. God has made us to be a singing people. So when we gather together, sing. So if we want to apply this passage, we sing. If we want to apply this passage, another way we can do it is by not singing. So I want you to sing, and I want you not to sing. Sometimes while we're singing as a church, stop and listen to what's being sung around you. Be encouraged that, at least in our own context, in any given service, there's 250 or so people singing passionately the truth that you affirm. You are not alone. And the reality is many of us come in here week to week, and we're down. We've had a rough week. We've had difficulty in our marriage or difficulty with our kids or difficulty at work or difficulty in all of those places. And we come in burdened, and our hearts are not warm to sing. But as we hear the truths being proclaimed through the songs that are being sung, and this is a singing church, this is a good place to listen. As we hear those things being sung, it warms our hearts 
The Spirit has his work. And then we too are encouraged. Be encouraged in your difficult circumstance. Let us sing to you and encourage you in the truth of the gospel. Again, Keith Getty writes, God has formed our hearts to be moved with depth of feeling and a whole range of emotion as the melody carried truths of who God is and whose we are sink in. So in order for us to sing together or in order for us not to sing together, we have to be together. We have to come. If we value worship, then we value this time, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, whatever time it is, when we gather to worship, we want to be together. To take advantage of these realities, the promises that God has for us here in these scriptures, we have to join together. We have to be here. Hebrews 10, 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. We've been talking about one of those ways right now. They're singing, right? Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, in Colossians, Paul is calling us to stir up one another to love and good works through the songs that we sing. But if we're failing to make it a foremost priority to be together, then we will not be able to fulfill the ministry that God has given us as we sing together. But as we gather, sing with great thankfulness for the grace of God, being encouraged at the truths of Scripture that dwell richly among the gathered body as we teach and correct with the wisdom of God through the singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs given to us by the church. And we're going to end a little bit differently tonight. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then uh, Caleb and the team are going to come back up, and, and we're just going to sing together. I wanted us to have an opportunity tonight to apply these things that we've been talking about. And maybe you come in tonight and your heart is overflowing. The grace of God is poignant in your heart and in your mind tonight, and you, you're ready to sing with exuberance. Sing out. Maybe tonight you've come in and you're burdened. Maybe you've had a rough week or a rough day. Listen to the church. Be encouraged as we sing together. Let's pray together and then, and then we'll sing. Father, we do thank you that you give us singing. That you give us worship, Father. That it is not simply something that we do and receive no benefit from. Though, Lord, it would be appropriate if that was the way you had designed things. And yet, Lord, we recognize that as we sing together, we glorify you, and that is our first priority, but in that, we are encouraged and we are built up together. I pray tonight, Father, that you would make us a word-saturated people, that we would do the hard labor of investing in the scriptures individually, that we might be more effective as we invest in the scriptures together. And as we do that, our worship would be fueled by and empowered by your spirit, applying the scriptures that you have taught us. That we would worship you with great joy and passion and life. That we would be enabled to encourage others in our singing. That we ourselves would be encouraged as we hear others sing and as we are taught and as we are admonished. And Father, as we all apply these things together, we would be a church that is distinctly marked by biblical worship. I thank you, Lord, that we're a singing church. And I pray that by your Spirit's power, we would excel still more in this area. And Father, as we continue in worship through singing now, we pray that you would be glorified here. In Jesus' name.